Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to AccessibleWorld.org to our program, special program series. And tonight uh, we have a real friend here who is going to speak to us. He was and always will be an icon in talk radio in Los Angeles, and I think we might have some Wisconsin people who are very familiar with him as well. He's going to discuss famous generals of the Civil War. He may bring up some that uh, are famous and shouldn't have been, and some that weren't famous and uh, it should be. So, uh, Ira, why don't you start out, and we'll respond as you wish here. Well, this is I, hardly know, I hardly know where to start. You know, the Civil War is such a huge subject. And we're talking about generals. What I'd like is for people to ask questions and, uh, you know, throw things at me, and then I can respond, and that, that makes it go a lot easier. But uh, to begin with, let's just start from the beginning of the war. Uh, the general-in-chief of the armies at the time the war began was Winfield Scott, who had been the hero of the Mexican War and in 1944. He had been one of the two uh, top commanders in Mexico, 46. Um, Winfield Scott, by this time, was, a, was a, an old man, and he had put on a lot of weight. He could not possibly command in the field. But there was nothing wrong with his brains. And it was Winfield Scott who devised what they called the Anaconda Plan, how the Union armies should uh, operate to win the war. Now, he was not thinking about invading the South with large armies right from the beginning. Scott's plan was to take advantage of the Federal Navy to shut down Confederate trade with Europe. Uh, and with the West Indies. In other words, isolate the Confederacy by blockade. And then to attack down the rivers from the, uh, from Ohio, the Ohio, the Mississippi, and further west, uh, perhaps the Missouri. Uh, William T. Sherman, William Tecumseh Sherman, who had been teaching at the Louisiana Military Institute and went north uh, at the beginning of the war, remarked that the side that controls these three great rivers will eventually control the continent. And Scott realized this also. So his plan was to isolate the Confederacy by blockade, you know, let the Navy do the work. And then, after the troops had been drilled, because most of the men in the Army, the standing Army was very small, and most of the men in the Army had never fought anything but Indians in the West, uh, and all of a sudden, Lincoln asked for 75,000 volunteers for three months, and most of them had never even fired a gun at all. Uh, most, of these, most of the people on both sides had never fired a gun. So uh, to uh, start making large and spectacular military movements, Scott thought was just ridiculous uh, with untrained troops. So he proposed to train the troops before they moved. Well, this was not good enough for the, uh, what would you say, the uh, enthusiasts in the North who saw this uh, war as something uh, that would be uh, a picnic, literally. And when Lincoln called for the 75,000 men for three months, uh, Horace Greeley put a standing headline on the New York Tribune, On to Richmond, on to Richmond. They wanted to march out uh, and conquer the South in one big you know, one, one swoop, and that would be the end of the war. Nobody on either side thought that this was going to be four years of terrible fighting. Uh, it was a romantic thing. The Confederates were just as romantic as the Unionists. They didn't foresee the cost and treasure and lives. They had no idea that this was going to happen. Robert Toombs, who was a... Um, Governor, I think the governor of Georgia, or senator from Georgia, uh, and was supposed to be elected president of the Confederacy, except that that, that uh, fell through when Jefferson Davis got the job. But Robert Toombs made a speech in which he warned, he was drunk probably at the time, but he warned <laughs> that it would take years of fighting. You don't know what you're doing when you start this war, he said. But the Confederates uh, went ahead and started it. And Toombs became, in fact, an officer in the Confederate Army as well as a Confederate politician. But he was right. It did take years, and it did go far, far beyond what anybody else thought. So Scott's plan, the Anaconda, was actually the plan the Union followed, although 
not at the beginning, when uh, they attempted to march the army out of Washington down into Virginia and attack a federal force at Manassas. Now, why was Manassas important? Manassas, 20 years before, would have just been another town. But in 1861, it had something very significant about it. It was a high plain, and at the face of the plain was a railroad junction. The railroad from uh, Richmond to uh, Fredericksburg, you know, uh, the jumping off place for Washington, uh, met the line from the Shenandoah Valley at Manassas Junction. And there was a Confederate force of 28,000, 24,000 men in the valley commanded by General Joe Johnston. Well, the other Confederate force uh, was at Manassas. The Union attack was aimed at keeping the Johnson force from coming by rail to Manassas to join the Confederates who were already there and form an army that would outnumber the Union army. In other words, the objective was a railroad junction, and the object was to keep troops being uh, concentrated by rail. Nothing like this had been seen before in warfare, because the Crimean War took place largely in areas that didn't have railroads, and before that, the Napoleonic, uh, the Napoleonic Wars had been before the invention of railroads. The Civil War was the first modern war in many, many ways, but from the very first battle of the war, one of the things that stands out about the Civil War is the extent to which it was a railroad war. Railroads made a huge difference in the way armies could move and the way they could be supplied. And this was previously absolutely unknown. So nobody really had the sense of how important they were going to be. However, fairly early in the war, the Union Army appointed a railroad official. His name was Herman Haupt. Ever heard of him? Yes, I have. Well, you're good, because most people haven't. <laughs> Herman Haupt was made a, the commander of the U.S. Military Railroad Service, and he did a tremendous job over the next year or two in using the federal railroads and in preparing to use the Confederate railroads once they were captured. Railroads in the Confederacy uh, were strung out over long distances for the most part, but they were not, uh, you know, not very well equipped, and there was no, uh, no military industrial complex behind them. So Haupt did things like devise pre prefabricated bridges that could be put up quickly if the bridge was knocked out. And, of course, the Union rolled iron rails. The Confederacy hardly had um, that. Only one or two mills in the Confederacy could make rails. So the Union armies, uh, right from the beginning, had a technological advantage in this brand-new science of warfare called the Railroad War. Also, the Union had a huge advantage in naval warfare. The Confederacy started with no Navy at all. The Union had something like 80 ships in commission, hardly enough to, uh, to make the blockade work. But the Union also had the industrial base to call on that the South didn't have. And very rapidly, during the first summer of the war, 1861, the Union Army sent uh, representatives, uh, or the Navy really, sent representatives to all the different areas of the Union to buy up ships, to buy tugboats, ferry boats, anything that would float, uh, arm them with a few guns and maybe some uh, light armor, and stick them off a southern port. Because for the most part, all they had to deal with was wooden blockade runners. And so a lightly armed ship with cannon, however, could deal with a uh, running blockade runner. And so by the end of 1861, there were over 400 Union ships standing off southern ports, and the Confederacy was already starting to feel the pitch as early as the end of 1861. Uh, just to give an indication of what happened the next year, in 1862, uh, the Confederacy suffered a malaria attack, a malaria plague, and the, the uh, cure for malaria was quinine, the antidote is quinine. Mm -hmm. But the Confederacy didn't have quinine, it had to be imported. 
And because of the blockade, there was no quinine. And the severe, the malaria was much more severe than might otherwise have been uh, just because of the blockade. The blockade was already reasonably effective by the, by the summer of 1862. So Scott's Anaconda plan was, uh, was beginning. Meanwhile, the troops did indeed march out from Washington under one of the least fortunate generals of the war, a man whose name is hardly even remembered today, General Irwin McDowell. And uh, McDowell was known today pretty much only by Civil War buffs who remember him as the first Union general of the uh, Army that later became known as the Army of the Potomac. McDowell had was ordered uh, in July to prepare a big victory because the three-month uh, enlistment of those troops was going to run out. And it was regarded as politically impossible to allow them to just go home without ever having fought a battle. So McDowell was, said, was informed that a great victory was desired for the 4th of July. Well, it was a little too late to prepare a great victory for the 4th, but he did try to get to work and come up with a plan of action. And the plan was to send the Federal Army to Manassas before the Confederates could reinforce it with Johnson's troops from the Shenandoah. And so on July the 23rd, uh, 1861, Everybody knew there was going to be a fight in Manassas, which is only about 25, 27 miles from Washington. So the whole population of Washington, uh, all the ladies in their bonnets and their uh, big dresses with the hoop skirts on, and all the gentlemen in their hats and uh, the top hats and, and whiskers and canes, all went out for a carriage ride and went down to see the fun at Manassas. Well, the Federal Army attacked all right, uh, that is, when it wasn't straggling out of position because nobody knew how to march, nobody knew how to shoot. <laughs> uh, they did actually stage an attack, and for a while it was reasonably successful because the Confederates, remember, weren't any much better off than the Union troops were as far as training and, uh, and knowledge of how to fight. But that afternoon... As uh, McDowell thought that he was winning, his troops came up against Confederates on a hill in the middle of the battlefield. And on that hill were some troops from Virginia, commanded by a, name, a man named Thomas Jonathan Jackson. <laughs> Stonewall. Well, yeah, except he wasn't Stonewall yet. Not yet. Was, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, while the attack was going on, a Confederate officer nearby, from I think he was in South Carolina, called Barnard B., saw that Jackson's troops were holding their line. And he shouted to his men, Men, uh, look over there. The Virginia troops are standing like a stone wall. Uh, follow, you know, follow their example. Uh, look, at, look at what Colonel Jackson's doing and follow their example uh, and hold like a stone wall. He was killed a few minutes later. But the word Stonewall in regard to Jackson stuck. And he became, indeed, Stonewall Jackson for the rest of his life and for all the years since. He was the first great, I guess, the first great commander to be identified on either side because this was the very first battle, and he made his name for himself by standing like a stone wall on the field of Manassas. And after that stand... It was the Confederates who chased the Union troops off the field, and they all went running for the one bridge across the river, uh, the Bull Run River, and uh, some of them got across. Uh, some of the carriages got left behind, and it was a mad dash to Washington that night. And uh, the first battle of the war was a Confederate victory. What both sides learned from that first battle was that neither side was ready to fight. And so from July of 1861 till the spring of 1862, uh, for a good six or seven months, there was no significant large-scale fighting. It was like the, uh, the phony war, the Sitzkrieg in, in yeah. Europe uh, in 1940, but for a different reason. In this case, it was that both sides had raw men and had to train them how to march, how to, how to survive in the wilderness, outdoors, and how to shoot. So that was the beginning of the war with uh, on neither side yet, yet at this uh, up till now 
had shown the ability to really run a first-class war. Some of the best officers in the Army resigned from the Union Army to go south. And, of course, uh, the more foremost of them was Robert Edward Lee, who was the commander of the troops of Virginia. Um, he had been colonel of the 2nd U.S. Cavalry, which was an elite unit formed under him. Uh, one of the jobs that his cavalry had uh, was they, had, they happened to be on leave in Washington uh, in 1859 when uh, John Brown raided Harper's Ferry. That was a detachment of Lee's command that was sent to Harper's Ferry to capture John Brown. And it was Lee's subordinate, James, James Ewell Brown Stewart, who was the man sent to knock on the door and order Brown to surrender. <laughs> and so uh, Lee was, was on the field for the uh, capture of John Brown at Harper's Ferry, even before the war started, when he was still in the U.S. Army. Uh, Lincoln offered Lee command of all the armies of the United States when he was uh, inaugurated in March 1861. Lee was known as the best general in the Army. He had been Commandant at West Point. He had a very uh, great career, was a noble personality, uh, known for his probity and uh, smarter than anybody else in the Army. He also, with the exception maybe of Scott. But Lee was a, a strange character outside of the military aspect. He was a terrific soldier, but he had very little sense of anything else. He had no sense of humor, didn't laugh much. He couldn't understand politics very well, didn't really want to, I guess. But Lee, when he had to make a decision between commanding the armies of the United States and commanding this, the troops of the state of Virginia, saw Virginia as his country and resigned from the U.S. Army, knowing that his home in Arlington would be occupied by Union troops and he'd never been able to never see it again. Uh, he supposedly uh, marched up and down all night in the, in the gardens trying to decide what to do, and in the morning he sent his resignation to Lincoln and refused the offer to command the federal troops, and by the next day he had to leave the Arlington mansion. Uh, that is where the Arlington Memorial Cemetery is today. And the Lee Custis Mansion is still there uh, on the property, Robert E. Lee's home. How are we doing? We're doing good. And, and uh, so, uh, so basically then Lincoln did offer to Lee, as we know, and Lee uh, just said, I'm not going to raise this sword against my country, Virginia. He saw it as a confederacy already, yep. separate countries. Or, but uh, that gives you an indication of how weak Lee's political sense was. Yeah. He really did see the confederacy as a league of 11 different republics and his job as he saw it was to defend Virginia and he refused to allow his army to be taken out of Virginia no matter what the necessity was anywhere else for a good two years uh, not only that but had he understood that the Union was something bigger than a bunch of loosely allied states he never understood what Lincoln saw from the beginning, that the country could not survive as a uh, group of loosely allied states, that its future lay in becoming a one single powerful country. Uh, Lincoln saw what Alexander Hamilton had seen during the Revolutionary period, and which people like Lee and uh, Calhoun and uh, some of the others never saw, never did see. Uh, you know who did? Who grasped it on the Union side? Outside of Lincoln, Ulysses Grant. And it was because Grant had so much better a political sense than Lee had that gave Grant the power and the authority that he used to win the war. Uh, Grant realized that this was not a local fight between the armies of one state and another state. It was not a regional War, combat warfare, an Eastern theater and a Western theater, and neither the twain shall meet. Grant realized that it was a continental struggle that involved naval and military forces from every part of the country involving every part of the country. Everything from Texas east, everything from Maine to Florida. 
And when Grant created his grand strategy of 1864, which had all the federal armies moving at the same time, putting pressure on the Confederacy at every point and cooperating with the Navy at every point, this was when Lincoln finally realized that he had found what he was looking for, the man who could bring this war to an end. And it was in 1864 that Lincoln appointed Grant, the overall commander of all the Union armies. Now, they had tried this before. He had tried it in 1862 uh, with McClellan, and then after uh, McClellan was removed from command of all the Union armies in order to concentrate on the, the one he actually commanded in the field, Henry Wager Halleck was named the general-in-chief of the Union armies. Halleck was a book soldier, not a field commander at all, didn't want to be a field commander for the most part, and uh, he uh, ran the army uh, from Washington. Uh, at, after Grant was upset at Shiloh, Halleck did come out to take personal command and accomplished very little. Uh, he moved the army 30 miles in 30 days while the Confederates got stronger. And uh, eventually Halleck went back to Washington and spent the rest of the war as a uh, the paper chief. If you can touch a bit on McClellan. He oh, had yeah. the army. What, what happened? Why was he so indecisive? Well, <laughs> there's lots of questions about that. But let's talk about McClellan first. McClellan was a capable officer. Lee said after the war that McClellan was the best general he faced. That may have had something to do with the fact that he beat McClellan on all the time. But, you know, but McClellan did have a lot of things going for him. Number one, he was a brilliant man. He had been uh, one of his, if not the top man in his class, certainly near the top at West Point. And he resigned from the Army to become a railroad president and engineer. And then, when uh, the war broke out, he offered his services to the governor of Ohio, his home state, and was made uh, general of the, of the uh, Ohio militia. And early in the war, uh, defeated a couple of Confederate forces in what was then Virginia, uh, then to become West Virginia. And he also had the ability to promote himself, which was very important for generals in those yep. days. Uh, McClellan wrote such glowing reports of the fighting in West Virginia, where altogether there were about maybe 10,000 troops involved. Uh, he wrote such brilliant re accounts that people in Washington said, Ooh, who's this guy McClellan? He was only in his early 30s at the time. But uh, Lincoln really had no guides to who to appoint. How do you choose a general when the country hasn't fought any kind of war at all in 15 years? And the officers who fought that one were mostly retired. And the last big conflict they fought was in 1812. <laughs> so how do you choose a general? Well, Lincoln chose by uh, reputation, by status in civilian life. There was nothing else to go by. Um, so when Scott was too old and couldn't go out and command in the field, they needed a commander. And McDowell obviously had failed. Uh, there wasn't much to McDowell. He was just an ordinary officer not gifted in any way. So Lincoln named McClellan to be commander of the, uh, of the armies. McClellan had this big reputation based on his own writings, but also on his record at, at West Point. And then another thing about McClellan was that he was a terrific leader of the troops uh, in the sense that they loved him. His troops thought he was the end of the world. He took care of them. He gave them lots of leaves. Uh, he inspired them. Uh, he was, the, he was the, the leader that they saw. He, they saw a leader in McClellan, and he was. He was very good at drilling troops, and very good at uh, creating, you know, creating uh, what would you call it, uh, morale in the Army. That was his specialty. And had he done nothing else but that, he would have been a great success. When he got into the field, he was capable of moving troops around. He had that. But there was one thing that he was very reluctant to do. In his entire career, he hated to take uh, offensive action because he was always afraid that he was going to be uh, outnumbered, that something would happen, and he, that he would be defeated in the field. If you attacked him as he fought on the defensive, he was a great commander. He inspired his troops and was very tough to, to move out of the 
opposition. But to take the offensive, to risk his forces against unknown numbers, and he always had uh, the idea that he was out, outnumbered. Uh, outnumbered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite Civil War writers, Fletcher Pratt, wrote about McClellan. And I don't know, he may be right, how do you know? But he wrote that McClellan was the kind of man who was so happy to be where he was <coughs> that psychologically his response to the situation was to try to hold what he had at all costs. In other words, he put the army and himself first and the country second. second. Uh, when the army was attacked, then he was a ferocious fighter because it threatened his position. But to take the offensive, to take the risk of losing, to take the risk of uh, losing his, his own position was something he was un- unable to bring himself to do because he didn't put the army, he didn't put the country first and see the army as the means of winning the war, of uh, conquering the South. That he was, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't manage. Uh, and I think, you know, Pratt may have something there about psychologically that the man had a, a complex uh, of fear that he would not be successful if he had to take the, you know, take the, uh, the initiative. Uh, that's put the army ahead of the country. Are you there? Hello? Yeah, he's still here. I'm here. Um, yeah. I re- uh, what about the cavalry? We look at Jeb Stewart and Phil Sheridan. Could you talk about those two? Oh, yeah. The ca- well, the cavalry is some of the interesting stories in the war. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the war, the Confederates had all the best of the cavalry. Right. Uh, and that was partly because the Confederate officers were from a part of the country in which riding and shooting were commonplace activities. All the Confederates' uh, officers knew how to ride and shoot. And on top of that, they had their own very good horses. In the Confederate Army, the officers owned their own horses, which was not, uh, Grant didn't even know it until after the Appomattox. But the Confederacy had the best of the horses and the best trained officers at the beginning of the war. But during the war, the Federal Cavalry developed a number of young officers who were real tigers. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Kilpatrick, uh, Custer, Sheridan. And uh, Sheridan was not raised as a cavalryman, but he became a cavalryman. Uh, and then people like James Wilson. Now, James Wilson is one of the people who's not known, who ought to be known. How many of the Civil War, even Civil War buffs may not have known about no, him? I don't know him. James Wilson. James Wilson was, uh, as uh, Grant put it, um, when Grant, I think, wrote to Thomas, who was commanding the Western Army, he sent him Wilson as a cavalry commander, and he said, this man will add 50% to the value of your cavalry. Wilson was a, 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 a kind of officer who's not afraid to try something new. And what he did was to arm the cavalry with carbines and turn them into mounted infantry. In other words, at the beginning of the war, the cavalry had pistols and sabers, you know, because that's what Old. cavalrymen fought with. They fought sure. hand-to-hand with sabers and short-range pistols. Wilson turned the cavalry into something like the ancestor of modern armor, mounted, uh, mounted high-powered rifles, um, automatic automatic weapons. And as a result, Wilson led one of the great cavalry charges of the uh, war, late in the war, when the Union cavalry invaded Alabama, got all the way into the Deep South, and uh, were totally, un- the Confederates were totally unable to match them at that point. Uh, also, in addition to fighting the candidate, the fighting caliber of the Union officers, the horses got a lot better. Uh, as the Confederacy took huge casualties and lost territory, they also lost the capacity to breed uh, enough really good horses. Whereas the North had far more, uh, you know, far more uh, land and far more time uh, to breed better horses and acquire better horses. Uh, there's in the North one of the themes of the Northern generals is they never have enough cavalry until late in the war. Uh, and they wouldn't move without it. Because when they did, they found out, as Hooker found out at Chancellorsville, what happens when you move without cavalry is you get the Confederate cavalry knowing exactly where you are, 
and in position to attack your flank, your flanks. And uh, with the technology of weaponry that changed in the Civil War, the flank attack became the crucial, uh, the crucial strategic element. Uh, it was no longer possible to attack straight ahead against troops in fortified positions. In the Napoleonic Wars, it was because the defense could get off a shot only about once every two or three minutes. But with uh, automatic weapons and with, uh, uh, what, do you, what am I thinking of, uh, rifled, rifled muskets, much more accurate, the defense could get off a shot far more frequently, and it invalidated all the tactics of the Napoleonic Wars. Headlong attacks met uh, incredibly bloody repulses. And so with that change in the uh, technology of the war came the emphasis on the flanking maneuver. And that, in turn, demanded cavalry cover. Now, so, uh, jumping, if I can, to Jeb Stewart, didn't he, why did he let Lee down at Gettysburg and stuff? What happened to him? Uh, well, he had been off on a raid at the wrong time. Now, Lee oh. did not give detailed orders to his subordinates generally. He, he often gave them a great deal of initiative. And Stuart was, as Lee called him, the eyes and ears of the Army. Right. But he was seeking to find the Union cavalry for a fight and wasn't at Gettysburg on the first day of the battle. And I don't think he was there on the second day either. No, I don't think so. The second no. day was when he fought his cavalry battle, but he wasn't there to protect a turning movement by the Confederate right. Um, Longstreet was urged to make a flanking maneuver around the Union right. And Longstreet said, yeah, <laughs> we have no cavalry. Yeah. Look what happened to the Union troops when they tried it at Chancellorsville. And Longstreet was right. He didn't have any cavalry. His right wing would have been totally unprotected. And that was an invitation to disaster. But so anyway, and the other thing that happened to Stuart and his men was when they got through fighting, they were so tired riding and fighting that they really were useless for the last day of the war, the battle. And then jumping to Longstreet, he, he prayed in the woods during the Battle of Gettysburg. What, what, was, what was with Longstreet? He was a capable general, I thought. He was. He was a very capable general, a very successful general. But at Gettysburg, he realized that the battle plan was flawed. He yeah. realized that they really? couldn't make a turning maneuver, that the charge, the great charge that uh, was made by Pickett and others, well, there's a great story. Longstreet was watching the charge, mm -hmm. and with him was uh, Colonel Fremantle, the British observer. And as Fremantle saw these 30,000 men trooping across this mile and a half of open country, uh, with the flags flying in perfect order and the guns uh, shooting, he said to Longstreet, Gee, I wouldn't have missed this for the world. And Longstreet turned to him and said, I would like to have missed it very much. Yes. Because, uh, you know, Longstreet knew uh, what was going to happen. Lee deluded himself, probably, because he had been so successful in the past, he also got the idea that his men could do anything. And there was a huge artillery bombardment, and they were counting on that to soften up the Union forces. But the artillery bombardment failed to do so because many of the shells were aimed too high and didn't hit the, the guns. Uh, the Union Army guns were kept silent deliberately, waiting for the uh, infantry to come out. They didn't try to fight the Confederate guns. They, uh, you know, they waited for the for the infantry to come out. So uh, at Gettysburg, Lee. Lee definitely miscalculated. He thought that uh, his troops could charge the, the Union line. He thought the Union line would be a lot weaker than it was. Uh, and uh, it, Lee later apologized. He said, as the uh, charge failed, he said, this is all my fault. But he had such prestige and such uh, moral ascendancy that everybody accepted the fact that it was just a mistake. And the Confederates uh, were willing to die for Robert Lee. In fact, by the end of the war, they weren't really fighting for the country anymore. They were fighting for General Lee. Oh, they Amazing. cheered him at Appomattox and everything. I mean, yeah. they, they really worshipped him. If yeah. I could jump to uh, to Joshua. But before you say one more, Good. one more cavalry Please. example, you have to tell about. Go ahead. And that is the uh, really most successful Confederate cavalry officer, and that was Nathan Bedford Forrest. Hmm. Nathan Bedford Forrest was a character. <laughs> He was the son of a blacksmith. He was virtually illiterate, 
but he made a lot of money before the war trading in slaves. Now, uh, this was not something that you were supposed to do if you were a polite gentleman. Uh, gentlemen didn't become slave traders. But Forrest was not a gentleman, <laughs> and he was a slave trader before the war. He also got into uh, other uh, financial areas and made a lot of money to the point where when he first had his uh, command, if I'm not mistaken, he outfitted the command with his own money. But he also was a tremendous forward, a fighter. He was a big man, six feet, three or four, um, powerful, terrific writer, and a guy who just never gave up. Uh, and all during the war, he had victory after victory, and a lot of them were on complete nerve. Uh, early in the war at, at um, Fort, Sh Fort uh, Donaldson, Fort Donaldson, the Confederate Army was besieged and was being forced to surrender. And Forrest said to Simon Bolivar Buckner, the commander, I didn't come here to surrender. I'm leaving. And he went out, took his cavalry and some other men who would go with them, and they uh, rode through the rivers up to their horses' chests or up to the horses' heads and uh, icy water and got away. And the, the uh, Union Army never did catch up with it. Uh, Forrest had victory after victory throughout the war. Uh, he did lose a few, but not very many. And he was a tremendous cavalry commander. Okay, I he was a natural. You know, the, you know the famous story about Forrest. Somebody asked him, how do you win all those battles? <laughs> and Forrest said, classic, I get there fustest with the mustest. <laughs> <laughs> I have to read more about him. Golly. Oh, he was something. He was the first grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan after the war. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oh my. Founded, one of the founders of the clan. Okay, we have to talk about Joshua Maynard Chamberlain because my friend Sherry's out there listening. I hope you mean Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Lawrence, sorry. The hero of Gettysburg. Right. Yes. Yeah. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, sorry. Right. Well, Josh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was, of all things, a math professor. He taught at, I think it was Bowdoin College in Maine. Right. And... He had not been in the Army for the first two years of the war. He was teaching math. But in 1860, late 1862, early 1863, he obtained a leave of absence, which, uh, you know, you could do as a professor. You, get, you go off in, uh, on a sabbatical and you, uh, you know, study your field or something. Well, instead of studying his field, he gave up mathematics and enlisted in the Army and became colonel and uh, was in charge of a regiment of Maine troops at Gettysburg. It turned out that they were on the far south end of the Union line at the uh, hill called Little Round Top. And that hill was the hill that uh, Longstreet wanted to attack, was supposed to attack, but they had no cavalry to attack. He sent troops to it, all right, and they stopped on the way up the hill for a rest. Well, <laughs> Chamberlain's men attacked them and drove them back, drove them back, drove them back. Finally, Chamberlain and his men were out of ammunition. And what do you do when you're out of ammunition? You've got hard-fighting soldiers coming against you. You retreat, right? Retreat, yes. Not Joshua Lawrence <laughs> Chamberlain. He did something that was absolutely unheard of. He ordered a charge. Oh, my. <laughs> uh, I've got the page in front of me here. The 20th Maine, that was, that was his regiment. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, the troops under Longstreet, the Alabama troops, drove the Maine, uh, the Maine troops back five times, and five times they came back and refused to leave. And Chamberlain had already lost a third of his troops by the time the Little Round Top was being attacked the last time. And so what did he do? He ordered his men to fix bayonets and had his left come running down the hill with their bayonets out and sweeping towards the right into the Confederate flank. Oh, my goodness. And the Confederates turned and ran. And it kept Little Round Top in Union hands and prevented the Confederates from mounting guns on top of the hill and enfilading the Union line. Um, it was just an incredible fight. Incredible. Uh, 
Uh, but Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain got the Congressional Medal of Honor for that. Uh, the, regiment, the regiment they fought against was the 15th Alabama, and they said that they had never been whipped before in the, in the war. And uh, here's Chamberlain, a math professor on sabbatical, <laughs> uh, starting this incredible charge when his men were out of ammunition and winning the uh, key position, uh, holding the key position for the Union. Well, we certainly can't leave without talking about Uncle Billy Sherman. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, Grant will get to, but... Well, William Grant. Tecumseh Sherman. Uh, I think if we had... If Sherman were in the Army today, he'd probably be dismissed <laughs> because he was uh, uh, what we would today call... Um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, bipolar. He, oh, yeah. had, he was either way, way up or way, way down. Uh, he had... Uh, periods in which he was practically incapacitated by uh, by uh, gloom and by uh, mm -hmm. you know an inability to cope, and at other times he was very high. Uh, Sherman said of himself, "I'm a better soldier than Grant, but Grant has something I haven't got: nerve." Mm -hmm. he, he appreciated Grant's superiority as because Grant, Grant was the kind of guy would never, ever give up on anything. He would find a way. Sherman didn't have that kind, of a, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of a personality. Sherman's brother was a senator from Ohio. Oh, John uh, Sherman. Was John Sherman, right. Yeah. Uh, and a very important member of Congress. Uh, Sherman himself, as I said before, had been a professor of tactics and uh, military science in Louisiana. And at the start of the war, Somebody asked him, what is it going to take to suppress this rebellion? And, you know, everybody expected to say, oh, 75,000 troops for three months. Sherman said, well, it may take half a million men four years. Mm, right he was. And as a result of saying that, he was thought to be a Confederate sympathizer. After all, he hadn't even been in the South for all this time. He's just trying to scare us off. So uh, he didn't have an easy start. But wherever he met uh, with Grant, Grant saw in Sherman something that he liked. Sherman was a fighter. And Grant, of course, was, was a fighter. And Sherman became Grant's right-hand man in the Vicksburg campaign. And uh, Sherman was the second-in-command at Vicksburg and was charged with holding off the Confederates' attempts to uh, send a relief army, which he did. And after, after um, what do you call it, after uh, Vicksburg, uh, when Grant became commander-in-chief of the armies, Sherman was named commander in the West. And Grant's whole strategy in 1864 was he would hold Lee in the East, keep Lee from sending any troops West, keep Lee from helping the Confederate Western Army, and giving Sherman the responsibility of marching through Tennessee and Georgia, in South Carolina, and eventually winding up in Lee's rear. Sherman, in other words, had the offensive. Yeah. Grant's army's job was essentially defensive. The Army of the Potomac. He gave Sherman the big job. And Sherman uh, was, the, was the man who said, war is hell. War is hell. He hated the idea of total war. But he saw that that was the only way that the war could be won. Uh, Sherman was accused of, uh, you know, atrocities and fighting the civil civilian population in a way that had never been done before. But <coughs> Sherman realized that warfare in 1864 was different from warfare in 1787 or, or 1812 or 1840, and he did uh, devote himself to what could be called total war because it was the only way of defeating the Confederacy. Uh, to destroy the Confederacy's economic base was as much important as to destroy its armies, maybe more so. Absolutely. And that meant, uh, that meant destroying property uh, and disrupting the Confederate um, system, which meant you know, the slaves running off, allowing slaves to run off from the plantations, uh, attacking the plantations themselves. And the damage that Sherman did in Georgia uh, is, you know, redound. And what he did in South Carolina was worse. But Sherman's army in South Carolina was a 
almost unbelievable. They actually had engineers building bridges as fast as the troops could march. Oh. <laughs> and they, they uh, made it impossible to march in the South Carolina swamps. And when Joe Johnson, the Confederate commander, heard of it, he said, this is it. It's all over. Yeah. This, there hasn't been an army like this since Julius Caesar, quote, unquote. So I Sherman was a great character oh, and a great general. No, Absolutely. Uh, Sherman was the opposite of McClellan. McClellan was defensively <laughs> very very good, but offensively couldn't what? take the... He had not the personality to be an offensive general. And Sherman had the offensive personality and realized uh, what needed to be done and had no compunctions about doing it. Great. Let's see if we have any questions from our audience. I'd love to. Love, and, well, you know, I've been talking for 45 minutes. I know, but I just love it. I've let you go because everything was so interesting. Uh, let's see, um, Ron, uh, let's get some. see if anybody has any questions, please. Uh, currently, Francis is the only one waiting. Let's see okay, what he has to Francis. say. Well, I wanted to know, after Gettysburg, um, you know, the, uh, the South retreated and uh, the North, the um, Union didn't didn't go after them, and I wonder if they if they had gone after them, would that have shortened the war any? Extremely unhappy with me for not following up, right. not pursuing. But think of it this way, from Meade's point of view, Meade was a defensive general, mm -hmm. uh, never commanded before, and actually took command of the army within just a few days before Gettysburg, and wasn't even sure. Uh, of his command uh, and his uh, ability to uh, to handle the army, and it's much to, much easier to do it defensively. Secondly, think of the casualties his army had suffered. Oh yeah. Uh, the Union army had suffered fifty what fifty thousand casualties at Gettysburg, something like that, an enormous amount of casualties, and he uh, couldn't see his way clear to following the Confederates who had fought so hard. He might be led into a trap. He was worried about being led into a trap uh, where he would not have his fortified positions and that his army would be overwhelmed and the war would be lost. So from Meade's point of view, uh, letting the Confederates go wasn't that, you know, that uh, strange a decision. Um, it was not a decision that an offensive-minded general would have made who had terrific confidence. Uh, Meade, you can't, you can't blame Meade for not being what he wasn't. Yeah. No, and he's not the, he's not that kind of a person. And you're right, he did uh, take over about three or four days before Gettysburg. So and I, he was I, surprised when he did. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. He, th he thought when they came to his tent in the middle of the night that they were going to arrest him for <laughs> disobeying orders or something. And they named him commander. Let, let's see if there's another question, please. That was good, Francis, once we got it. Anybody else with a question? Yes, Don Queen is waiting with a question. Don, let's see if we can hear Don. Uh, yes, I, I wasn't clicking there. Um, I I had heard a couple of uh, excuses for McClellan in the past, and one was that Pinkerton would uh, was was giving distorted numbers to McClellan. That is, he'd have several operatives in the field who were counting the same troops, and so he'd just add all these numbers together, and so he got a, a very distorted number. And the second thing I had heard that he was never thought the war was a good idea. Uh, I mean, nobody did, but that maybe they could uh, come to make a peace arrangement at some time that this war, that uh, rather than fight oh, a very bloody civil war. Peace arrangements of, of, that McClellan was involved with some kind of secret meetings? Well, when he, no, when he ran for uh, president. President, for peace candidate. Yeah, he ran as a peace candidate originally. Uh, that was, at least that was the platform of the party. But McClellan, in the course of the campaign, uh, abandoned the party platform. <laughs> uh, he said, no, we don't, we don't want to make peace. What we want to do is uh, you know, win the war, and uh, I'm just a better man to win the war. Uh, and that just cut the, the, uh, the peace plank out of the party. Uh, it wouldn't have mattered anyway, because during the summer of 64, as you know, uh, the Union Army won victory after victory, beginning in Mobile, uh, in the Shenandoah Valley, um, you know, one after another, big victories before the uh, the election. And the, uh, the election was not really close by the time it actually happened. It looked in the June and July as if uh, Lincoln was going to lose, and that was when the Democratic Party adopted the peace platform. 
Right. By by the time the election was actually held, the Union Army had uh, had scored a number of of important victories, and it was obvious that the war was coming to an end with a victorious conclusion, likely. And Don, I'm sorry we missed the first part on the numbers, something about numbers and McClellan, and I'm sorry. You might want to write it with F8, write it and enter, and now Ron or somebody can read it. I apologize. Any more Any more questions? I want to give you guys I have something else I want to talk about. Okay. Yeah, no... We pick up a question. Let's have Ira talk about what he wants right. to talk about. Uh, we're talking about people who should be known and people who uh, oh, yeah. serve. Uh, when I first began to study the Civil War, and I came across the name of George Thomas, I had never heard of him. No, Pap Thomas. Yeah, yeah old Pap, uh, slow trot <laughs> Thomas. Yeah. I had never even heard of him. And in fact, I would think if you ask the next hundred Americans who uh, you meet about the Civil War, and you ask them who was George Thomas, uh, 99 of them would probably say yeah. they don't know. Yeah. And if they did know, it was only because they lived in Washington, D.C., where there's a Thomas Circle with a big statue mm. of him. Okay. But uh, George Thomas was a Virginian whose family were all secessionists, and he refused to leave the uh, Union Army and went north, and for the rest of his life, his sisters refused to talk to him. Oh, my. Because he stayed and fought with the North. But George H. Thomas was the brains of the Union Western Army before uh, Grant and Sherman got there. And after uh, Grant had gone east and Sherman was the overall commander, Thomas was his right-hand man. And when Sherman divided his army at Atlanta uh, to take some of the troops across Georgia, he sent the rest back to Tennessee under Thomas. Thomas was the hero of the Battle of Chickamauga, uh, the Rock of Chickamauga. You never hear his name without that, the Rock of Chickamauga. Uh, he made that incredible defensive stand after the Federal Army was on the very, la very brink of being totally defeated um, and held off the Confederate forces, and then uh, conducted the retreat into Chattanooga, and eventually got command of the army after Sherman, uh, you know, yeah, that army he eventually got the command of. Um, he also was the victor at Nashville in 1864, the most decisive battlefield victory of the war, when a Union army under George Thomas and James Wilson uh, absolutely annihilated John Hood's Confederate Army, John B. Hood's Confederate Army. Oh, yeah. Hood had 50,000 men at the beginning of the campaign and 8,000 at the end. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and that was Thomas and uh, Wilson who did that. Uh, the other person um, <laughs> is Please. Braxton Bragg, the Confederate oh, yeah. General. Bragg. I love that name. Yes. Braxton <laughs> Bragg. It's almost as if somebody made it up, you know? How could you come up with a better name for the, you know, a more memorable name for a losing general than Braxton Bragg? <laughs> Jubilee gets me, too. Bragg lost every fight he was in, with the exception of Chickamauga, which was such a where he had so many casualties that the victory was really a loss. And he went from one loss to another. He couldn't get along with his own subordinates, and his own men hated him. Uh, his subordinates ignored his orders and just uh, wouldn't, you know, just couldn't stand him. He was a cold, uh, cruel, uh, you know, un unforgiving, isol not a personality of leadership at all. He, you know, he he was um, the kind of a personality who can't lead, who leads the, is the leader despite his personality rather than because of it. And this is the man that Jefferson Davis loved. Uh, Davis oh. was the only guy in the Confederacy who could put up with Bragg, but unfortunately for the Confederacy, Davis was the one in charge. And he loved Bragg, and he kept Bragg in power in, in office throughout defeat after defeat after galling defeat. Wow. And finally, Ben Butler. Talk to us about him. Oh, yes. The Beast. <laughs> the Beast. Benjamin Franklin Butler. Uh, Ben Butler had been a big city politician, I think in Boston or Philadelphia, no, Boston, I guess it was, yeah. yeah, and knew all about politics. And it was because he knew all about politics and was so powerful a force, uh, that's how he became an officer, a general. He didn't know anything about the military. You know, the military. He was a civilian and a politician. He also changed parties. He had been a Democrat 
who became a Republican at the right time <laughs> and became the favorite of the Republicans and uh, was sent out in the field. And while he was fighting in the field, he was a total, total disaster. He didn't know anything. But they found a job for him. When the, Confederate, uh, when the Confederates lost control of New Orleans, the Union Army occupied it, Butler was sent out to command the occupation forces in New Orleans. And he did a wonderful job <clears throat> in the sense he cleaned up the city, he suppressed crime, he suppressed disease, uh, did it, gave the city the best administration it ever had, except for one thing. <laughs> he had a great deal of trouble with the southern, uh, what would you say, the southern fanatics who saw him as the worst kind of northern scalawag, uh, not scalawag, but a carpetbagger. Um, Scalawag was a southerner cooperator. Was a southerner, right. Yeah, but uh, Butler, Butler had all kinds of problems with the ladies of New Orleans turning their backs on him <laughs> and throwing stuff out of the windows at him. Oh, my and God. And so he issued what is known as the woman order. Any woman of the South who uh, shows disrespect for a federal authority and a federal flag shall be treated as a woman of the town flying her profession. <laughs> and it caused such a stink that they had to take him out of New Orleans. <laughs> My final question is, was Lincoln the best general of them all? Was no. He, he wasn't. Lincoln, Lincoln a lot was, of people think he was. <laughs> okay. Well, Lincoln's great ability was that he had the vision to see that the other generals that he was hiring didn't have it. Okay. He could tell, he couldn't be a general himself but he could tell the qualities that he wanted in a general, okay. and he wasn't getting them. But when he recognized those qualities Grant. in Grant, then he gave Grant total authority. Um, and as it's, it's been pointed out, that never before had there been a situation where a democracy is fighting a war, and the authority to run the army in every detail is taken away, given away, by the civilian leader to the military specialist. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, now, Grant won that only by impressing Lincoln with his knowledge, <laughs> a strategy, and his conception of how to win the war. And Lincoln said, look, I don't have to do this anymore. I have my man. I have the guy who knows how to do it. Let him do it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I'm not going to interfere. Throughout the earlier parts of the war, there was constant interference with the generals from Washington, from the Secretary of War, from oh. Halleck when he was Chief of Staff. Uh, Constantly irritated, even Lincoln himself. Uh, McClellan always complained that Lincoln sabotaged him by requiring troops to be held back to protect Washington. Oh, yes, I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. So, but Grant never had that problem no. because Lincoln stood behind Grant and gave him full authority, uh, realizing that this, this was 1864 and that warfare had gone beyond the casual and needed the specialist who really knew how to run the army and uh, knew the strategy and had the plan and would, had the confidence of the troops all at one time. Grant was the great general of the war, greater than Lee. Maybe not as loved, not as beloved as Lee, but had more political vision and more, uh, what would you say, more uh, ability yeah. to lead outside yeah. the, uh, the the battlefield. He saw the un yeah. And he saw the Union picture. He saw the, the, yeah, country, he saw the whole, all the states. Right. Ira, this is the first modern war then, can we say in conclusion? Oh, yes. And it's generally recognized as the first modern war. Okay. In many ways. Technologically, of course, uh, with the development of uh, Industrial Revolution and the right. Industrial Society, the North was bound to win once it became clear that that, uh, that would be the decisive factor. The Confederates hadn't realized it at the beginning of the war. And probably a lot of people in the North didn't realize at the beginning of the war that this war was going to be different from all other wars. But that's why I made such a point about Manassas. Right from the beginning, it became obvious as early as July of 1861 that this war was going to be different from any previous war. And every war since has basically been like the Civil War in the sense that... Uh, the, the uh, way the war is fought is dictated by the uh, technological state of, of the oh, absolutely. world, of the societies. Ira Fistel, we want to thank you so very much. Just just an outstanding job. And this is recorded. It's going to go out to all our friends all over the place. 
And we well, I hope they so enjoy it. <laughs> they will enjoy it. Can you tell us one more thing about your your discs that you're proposing? I know. Oh you yeah, said, yeah. Uh, well, I tell, have. If a, you're selling them, how do we get them, etc.? Well, you can't get them yet. Okay. But in the uh, next few months, you will be able to. It's a four CD set um, of me talking about the war, as I did today. Great. But it's uh, it's not from a script or anything. It's not a lecture. It's conversation. And that's what makes it so much fun. Oh, more that's so much fun that way. We'll be looking for them, and I'm, I'm going to purchase them, I can tell you, and I know a lot of, a lot of people will here. Well, uh, just keep listening. And I will. <laughs> we'll let you know. I'll be in touch with you. We'll let I, you know when it all comes up. Okay. Ira, thank you so very much. This was just wonderful. Thank, thank you, you very much.